Here we are, November the 15th, 2015, lecture discussion number 220 on the book of Romans. Well, as you all are aware, especially this group, I know, unsurprisingly, evil, darkness has showed up again. It's showing itself as it does, as it is wont to do. Paris was the target. As you know, this time the scale was far larger than their last experience. Very wicked men soaked in wicked thoughts went about slaughtering the defenseless. And pay attention to that consistency. The targeting of those that are who are the most helpless is not happenstance. It's not coincidental. Uh, it is standard procedure for evil. Killing the innocent that's occurring in this children, occurring in this country. Killing the innocent, killing children. Um, the United States being overwhelmed by the killing of children. And that's always, by the way, the path that is taken. It's particularly attractive, the killing of children to the pathological. But if children aren't available for whatever might be the case, tactically usually, but if they're tactically unavailable, then any and all soft victims of opportunity will suffice. That's what happened to France. That's what happens here, too. If they believe you are defenseless, then you are in danger. Now, the nation of France, this current generation of French, I should say, will now know that this kind of evil cannot be appeased. It must be met with force. And I'm watching this as it uh, happened. And I watched it for hours, actually. And I noted that the president of France stated that France will respond to this act of war, he said. Act of war. And France would respond without concern for mercy. He will be pitiless, is his words that were translated, upon the ones that have attacked France. And that, by the way, is exactly the correct and only choice for France. With an enemy as ruthless as the Islamic State, when that enemy arises, negotiation, appeasement, if you will, is useless. It's impossible. All that is left is war. And he is right. So all out total war is all that will succeed. And it can seldom be advantageous to postpone it because it is inevitable. And France is learning that, or has learned it. And I, as most of you did, also watch this unfold. Uh, when it's unfolding, I have Ezekiel 38 on my mind. Whenever war is said by a head of state, especially in Europe, towards a Middle East entity, Ezekiel 38 should be your immediate destination. Those are astonishing things. To watch in our lifetime. But I was also concerned for the French civil, civilian population. Because they expressed a sense of bewilderment. Bewilderment. They repeatedly said that they were baffled by this. They could not comprehend the origin of such remorseless disregard for human life. They described the Islamists as inhuman. And I thought, well, when I heard that, the Islamists are most certainly human. They are not inhuman at all. They are human. And understanding the human capacity to choose darkness is essential. Page one. You have to recognize the human condition. Human beings will choose darkness. Human beings are predisposed towards darkness. They all run to darkness. The, the depravity of the human heart, right? Christians should never be caught unawares as to the depravity of the human mind. We are more than capable to choose to seek debasement. That's Romans 3.28. Eventually, God allows us 
to go into debased minds. He steps out of the way. Because without a knowledge of God, the true God, man will always fill with murder. It's no surprise then, then that a religion that portrays God as evil, the Islamics at the level of these men, this Islamic whatever you want to call it, they portray God as evil. They think God will bless evil. As you know, I was stunned, absolutely stunned, when the President of the United States said, God bless the eugenics movement in this country. That's what he did. He believes that God will bless the killing of innocent children. When you have that kind of thought process, I don't know what's left for you. You are, if you aren't teetering on the edge, you have gone into the pit, into the abyss. But it's no surprise then that a religion that portrays God as evil would have so much death as, as its primary characteristic, which once more causes the obvious question. Why do so many, so very many, prefer an evil God? Billions worship a God that they believe is evil. Why do so many prefer that God be evil over the good, the righteous, true God? Why is that? And I can't stress enough the importance to possess the ability to answer this question. You have to kind of work it out in your head. What is so attractive? That question was asked over and over and over again on television. Did you notice? They kept saying, how are they able to recruit why do so many people want to join an organization that beheads in children? You can make the same question. Why do so many people want to get paid to tear children to pieces and sell the parts? What, what is this attraction to evil? It's important to uh, possess that answer. But for today, I just want you to note the underlying motive of the Islamists, the, the Ezekiel 38 context, if you will. They are apocalyptic, as you've heard me say. They have convinced themselves, they believe, that if they succeed in bringing the Middle East to complete war, which is what they want to do, they bring it to all-out war, then the final imam will rise out of his deep place, his abyss that he is in, and, they, and he will lead the, to the destruction of the Jews and wipe them out completely from the world, extinguish them so that there is no Jews. There's your answer, by the way, hidden there. Why do they want to annihilate every single Jew? Why not, why not the Filipinos? Why not the Australians? They don't want that. They want to kill the Jews. So there's your answer, isn't there? Hidden inside that discussion is an answer that's very important to you. But they really do believe that the imam will rise from his deep place. They are right. Someone very evil will someday rise from his deep place. That's Revelation 13, right? He's coming, all right. And he will try to kill every Jew he can. They're right about that. They're wrong about who he is. They don't care. Now, in concert with that, as an aside, the uh, European Union voted something on Wednesday. On Wednesday, this vote happened, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Here again, Ezekiel 38. The EU voted to label all Israeli products. Do you understand what I mean by that? Anything that was made in Israel, anything that is of Jewish origin, is labeled. That was what they decided on Wednesday, November the 11th. And that is exactly, that is reminiscent exactly of what Nazi Germany did. Nazi Germany had an economic boycott on all Jewish businesses. They ordered the Germans not to buy any Jewish products. Starve them out. So here comes the European Union absolutely word for word, if you will, point by point following what Hitler did what the Nazis did in the 1930s. Now, place these two developments side by side. The growing Islamist violence in Europe 
which is almost beyond containment. How fascinating that somebody will stand up and say that we have Islamic violence contained. Uh, it is not contained and it will not be contained. It, it is almost beyond containment in Europe. And the European Union now, alongside of that, labeling of all Jewish manufacturing and agricultural products. No longer can we conclude that these are unrelated events when they concern Israel. What's our job? What do we do when this is all happening around us? What's he say to do? Watch therefore. Watch therefore. The end of the age of the Gentiles is near. Okay. Are you making all that noise, Susie? Hi, Mariel. How are you? (laughs) Hey, babies are absolutely welcome here. Because uh, I never get upset or even slightly distracted by a baby. I never have. So don't ever fear that with me. I consider it amusing. They also add a great deal of context to what I'm doing. They ask the best questions. They just ask them over and over and over again. That's the only problem. But they're still. They always ask why. In between saying mine. It's perfect. Okay, we have the bloodless offering to consider today. That's where we left off. We're focusing on salt. Why God instructed Israel to salt the bloodless offering or the grain offering. Leviticus 2.13, let me read it to you. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. He said it three times. He wants to make sure you've got it, but he also has a, a numerology that he pays attention to, God being very, very good at math. You shall season with salt. You shall never forget the salt. With all your offerings, you offer salt. A threefold instruction. Clearly, God intends for salt to be in every meal offering, our grain offering, our bloodless offering. You pick. To repeat from an earlier lecture a couple of days, or a couple of weeks prior, salt was regarded by Israel. Israel saw salt as not being destructible. By fire, in other words, salt is not burnable or it is indestructible by fire according to Israeli tradition. Therefore, they saw it as an eternal quality. Fire could not destroy it. You go back to the Daniel uh, reference to those in the furnace. Could not be destroyed by fire. Though Nebuchadnezzar considered it a possibility. Inside the furnace, of course, is Christ himself with those three. By the way, don't use their Babylonian names. That would be an error. Use their Jewish names. But the point of it is is that salt could withstand fire, had this eternal quality. Thus, the Jewish priests saw this inclusion of salt. When they saw we're putting salt in every aspect of the grain offering, of the bloodless offering, almost as a substitute. You're starting to, we'll start comparing the trespass offering with the grain offering in the coming weeks, but start noticing the contrasts that are there. This has no blood, so what replaces the blood? I'm getting ahead of myself. But they saw the salt as a statement of permanence, a statement of endurance, endlessness, uh, preservation that is forever. That's the purpose of salt. The salt spoke of the grain offering as being something, therefore, that God would never revoke. So when you put this offering into, into, onto that altar, it is a non-revocable offering. Obvious question. How is it that the pillar of salt, Lot's wife, see how I got there? How is it that the pillar of salt is therefore a symbol of everlasting preservation, of endurance, of something that cannot be burned to destruction. Everlasting is that symbol. 
How is it that Lot's wife is a symbol for that? You could easily, by the way, leap to ask, why is Lot's wife now included in every single grain offering? What's the reason that I put Lot's wife in the grain offering? Or you could do, you could leap this way too. Why did Christ say to Israel, remember the salt that is in the bloodless offering? Because wouldn't that all be connected? Of course it's connected. Obviously we need to more closely sift through the ingredients of the grain offering or the bloodless offering. How is it that the bloodless offering is a portrait of Christ? Everywhere in the Old Testament are portraits of Christ. This is a portrait of Christ. It's one of the five. All, it's the second of the five. All of the five. Each one a part is a picture of Christ, but the totality is also a picture, is Christ himself. So then, as is our custom, we're going to reread Leviticus 2 again, much to the delight of the congregation. Whenever the sermon is on Leviticus, everyone loves it. I like to do Leviticus on Christmas Day, as you know, but we don't have access to the building on those days anymore since we're parasites. But we're going to read Leviticus 2. It's thrilling. You will love it, those of you who are still awake, both of you in the front row. Nice job. <laughs> okay. Everybody, we're going to read it, and then we'll you wait till you see what we're going to do with it. I have to take my old glasses off. If I had my new glasses, I could read it. By the way, when I take the old glasses off, the congregation seems larger. Just how it is. When anyone offers a grain offering, starting on verse 1, we're going to go through all 16 verses of this, and, and I'll explain why in a minute. Excuse me. <coughs> when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And if you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offering to the Lord made by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. As for the offerings of, offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your, of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green Heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Okay, you ready for your test? 
Of course not. Congratulations on enduring that. Here comes the list. Something is going on in Leviticus 2 that is incredible. And it's time to learn how to read Leviticus. Let me start out with the first verse again. I intentionally went over it quickly. When anyone offers. Anyone. Oops. Lori got tired of me wearing the same pants every Sunday. So she hid them. We did that to Christopher one time. He had a pair of shorts that he loved. And we hid them from him until he got unaware of where they were. And then we burned them, I think. It was his mother's idea. I bear no responsibility. But now she's done it to me, the same behavior. What I mean now is that I don't have any pens, any combs, as I leave them in my pockets. She's diabolical. Oh, this one doesn't work either. Okay, a really brief respite. It is Lori's fault. Thank you. Take both of them and throw them away. Okay, let's see how we're doing now. Anyone. That's good news. Anyone who offers this. Fine flour. Pure, pour oil on it, right? So anyone that offers this fine, fine flour, you have to start pouring oil on it. Aaron's sons, they, uh, so the priesthood, whoops. Aaron's sons are the priesthood. They get to eat this. That makes it very unusual, by the way. There's a portion for them. Frankincense. Frankincense is here. Frankincense is very prominent in the Bible, as you know. So start making that connection. Why is frankincense here? Why is frankincense someplace else? This is something that's burned. Why is it burned? It's a memorial. A memorial of what? What is being memorialized? God keeps saying over and over again, it is a sweet aroma to me. What I am asking you to do is a sweet aroma. I like it. It smells good to me. It gets to me. It can be done in an oven. It can be done more than one way, in other words. What's that got to do with anything? No. It must be unleavened, I'm sorry, unleavened bread. It cannot be leavened. Okay. You have oven and now you have pan. What kind of pan is this? Why, why oven? Why pan? Why, why this, why these methods? What's he trying to say? If you do it this way, unleavened bread and you pan mix it, you gotta break it. Well, that takes you to Passover, right? Breaking it. Uh, you can have a covered pan. Who is giving you these instructions? God is. Start to uh, uh, internalize it. Start to say to yourself, I got uh, these instructions from God today. And he wants me to do this. And this is how I have to go about it. By the way, how many times in the New Testament does Christ reference Leviticus 2? Bring it to the altar. It's got to go to the altar. 
again, there's a memorial aspect and there's a memorial portion for the priesthood. What is left, it's called. What is left goes to the priest. Just the sons of Aaron now. And, and now this re- repeating, no leaven, but something added. No honey. Question becomes, by the way, I have, I have bee honey, I also have grape honey. Is it both or, or one singular? First fruits is now brought up. That's a feast day. And uh, the first fruits are not burned and they're not a sweet aroma. And then salt. Salt. Oops. This emphasis on salt. Make sure you put the salt in. And we have this beaten green heads. And that's it. There's your list. These are they that testify of Christ. That is a testimony of Jesus Christ. It's our job to figure it out. You have to begin to look at it in such a way that um, he gave me this and he wants me to figure it out. I read it to you. It was brutal. You should have seen yourself. Someday I'll film the audience when I read Leviticus. But you need to start saying to yourself, this is given to me. Look at it like, if you will, if you want to think of it as a puzzle to be solved, if that helps you. But you're supposed to know this. It has valuable information to you, doctrinal truths. And and let me say this, it needs to be said that the student of Scripture has to have a, a fundamental understanding of the sacrificial system and the priesthood in order to correctly interpret the New Testament. Every time I find someone express a doctrinal error, whether it's on salvation, whether it's on a person in the triunity of God, it is always because they don't understand Leviticus at all. They've never read it, or if they've tried to read it, they just blew through it, never found the pictures of Christ, and it makes no sense to them. Having said that, I recognize that uh, the contemporary focused church today produces very, very few that have any grasp of Leviticus. We have a church today where hardly anyone understands the book of Leviticus. And that's a condition that renders their congregations mostly incapable of discovering what is really meant when Christ says something in the New Testament. In other words, the Christians of today do not speak Leviticus. This is a language. It might seem like a foreign language to you. But it is, in fact, a language of of God. He has given you this format. And if you can read it and understand what he's saying, he is not, by the way, just saying something, giving you something to do. Each thing has a meaning to it. And you put the meanings together. These contemporary congregations that have... uh, they, for, they almost forbid their congregation to go into the Old Testament, but specifically Leviticus. They cannot understand the New Testament at all. When Christ says something, uh, he refers to this. He does it a lot. Most people read his words, they have no idea that he's referring to Leviticus. And so the words of Christ are hidden from them. And, and also the majority of New Testament uh, uh, Priesthood references and sacrificial references are hidden from people. That's why all the trouble in the book of Hebrews, they can't understand it. They get, they get all kinds of crazy ideas about Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
because they don't understand. They can't speak Leviticus. Anyway, uh, as you know, I've long been suspicious. I submit the church of today is intentionally doing this. They avoid Leviticus on purpose. They know if you learn Leviticus, you're hard to control. You're hard to convince of something that's stupid. It's easier to fool the, the, the customers if they don't know Leviticus. But you've heard that rant before, right? Okay. By now you've heard me repeat and repeat and repeat that the grain offering is a bloodless. There's no blood. Bloodless. That should make you go, wow. Why no blood? The whole Bible, especially Leviticus, is blood, 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 blood. We start out with blood everywhere. We start out with blood in Genesis. Cain and Abel, bloodless. We have a bloodless offering made by Cain, a bloodful offering made by Abel. We have bloodless and bloodful side by side. We know what happened there, right? So why is this one having no blood in it? What's the point? And that's greatly significant. We begin by asking, why is the grain offering bloodless? And I asked earlier, what has replaced the blood? What's replaced the blood? I don't have any blood. What do I got that's, if you want to think of it that way, taking the place of blood here? What's my choices? I could choose the oil. What else I got? I got salt. I got frankincense. It says add that, right? Make the case for flour, maybe. But God has a purpose here, and we have to figure it out. Instead of blood being offered, uh, what is being offered in its place? And then ask this, why these ingredients? Or if you prefer, why these specific pieces? Everything has a purpose. Everything is in a perfect order. Everything has a meaning to it. This is what? What would you call this? If I called you up and said, okay, I want you to get some fine flour. I want you to get some oil. I want you to get some frankincense. I got, you got to have a pan. Um, you're going to put it in an oven. If it comes out, you got to have unleavened bread and you got to break that unleavened bread. You got to cover the pan. You can give some to somebody, but you got to give, so you give some for yourself if you want. Don't put any dough in it. No leavened dough. Don't put any honey in it. Okay, got to add a lot of salt. What is it? What am I telling you? What is it, Marie? Yeah, it's a recipe. You know, one of the old coaches laments. It's really hard for a coach to coach other people's players. And you'll hear these Coaches say, I need to choose the players as well as coach them. If you're asking me to cook the meal, I should be allowed to buy the groceries. That's the coach's complaint. God has given you the groceries. and He's told you how to prepare them. And you're going to cook it. You ought to at least know what you're making. You're going to eat it too, by the way, if you're the cook here, if you're the priest. So there's your recipe. It's obviously God's recipe. God has provided the instructions. He's given you these ingredients, these very specific pieces. Israel was to follow the instructions and prepare the meal. That's great, except it is horrible if you prepare the meal and you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you made. You don't know what it's for. You get really good at making it, but you have no idea why. Did I almost knock it down, or is it out of batteries? It died. Huh? How's our redundancy? We've lost one half of our system. We're still good. Okay. 
So again, Israel follows the instruction and prepares the meal, but it's critically important that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. This sense that God was to partake of this meal is certainly an aspect of this, by the way. God is going to take the meal. He's he's sitting at his table, if you will. You're going to make it and serve it to him. Notice as well, this is restricted to the priesthood right here. Sons of Aaron, sons of Aaron, sons of Aaron. Memorial portion, what is left? This is something that the priesthood has a portion. God has a portion and the priests have a portion. This fine flour now, what is the first thing I do? i got to pour oil all over it. How much oil are you putting on it? What kind of oil is it? Fine flour is going to have oil poured on it, and then it's going to have frankincense mixed into it. Oil is now connected to frankincense. They are coordinated. They are paired up. I have oil and frankincense. It's the first thing I'm doing here. Lots of oil, by the way, and lots of frankincense. And One more time. Frankincense is prominent. It's one of the gifts of the court of Daniel to Christ. My name was Daniel. I'd understand frankincense because I had to bring it to Christ. Okay, Daniel's people had to do it. Long after Daniel was gone. They brought frankincense. They brought gold. And they brought embalming fluid, right? How'd they know that? They knew that I got to bring this incense. I got to bring the Grain offering, essentially, one of the main ingredients of the grain offering, I bring gold that is on the outside of the Ark of the Covenant, and I have to bring burial, embalming fluid. Those guys really had it figured out. Who taught them that? Of course, Daniel did. Oil, as you are aware, is what? What is the, what is oil traditionally considered to be a symbol of? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Yell it out here, impress the internet audience. Oil is almost universally considered by or by scholars of Scripture to be a symbol for the Holy Spirit. It is the communication of the Holy Spirit. And that's absolutely the case. But it should be noted that there is a distinction between the anointing oil that is the symbol of the Holy Spirit and oil that is supposed to be eaten. This is oil that I eat. Holy Spirit oil is a different, that, uh, that is a different symbol, though they are connected and interrelated as we should expect. Also, let me quit, quickly interject Leviticus 5.11. The tres, trespass offering, next week we're going to put the trespass offering in comparison or contrast, if you wish, either one. We're going to put it up here because the trespass offering doesn't have any oil. No oil and no frankincense is allowed in the trespass offering. Because the trespass offering, it says to you in 511 of Leviticus, barely say Leviticus now, 511 of Leviticus says the trespass offering, no oil and no frankincense because it's a sin offering. You can have it here in the grain offering, but I can't have it in the trespass offering. So we get another key clue as to the meaning of oil and frankincense now. Okay. Let me see if I have... I don't. I'll go over into this corner. I'll make a small board. Oil. Frankincense. Paired together. Oil has three functions in the life of an Israeli in the days of this, and even today. First thing, and... And Big Bonnie will know. First thing that you do with with oil is you anoint the body in the Israeli culture. You take anointing oils and you anoint the body. It's poured upon the body of the sick. It's on their wounds. It's poured upon the... Uh, it's. It's considered as penetrating into the bones. So these, this anointing oil has this sickness, healing, penetration, a means of alleviating pains and restoring health. It has that aspect. It brings softness to the skin as well. 
It shines the skin. It refreshes the skin. It strengthens it. This, this restoration of life. Can you see what I'm describing? This oil comes into you and restores your vitality. And restoration of life would be an accurate way to describe one phase of the oil of the three phases or the three factors or the threefold aspect of it that it has in Israeli society at this time. So that's number one, restoration. If I said to you restoration, refreshment, renewing the the skin, bringing softness, bringing strength, elasticity, penetrating the bones, reviving the bones, healing the wounds, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about resurrection. Absolutely I am. One aspect. The second use of oil was for food preparation. Anointing the food, making the food soft, making the food edible, bringing forth the taste of the food. Same thing, right? You see the similarity? Even though it had two functions, very similar. I'm putting oil on food and I'm bringing the food to a higher level. I'm softening it. I'm bringing taste out of it. I'm I'm refreshing it. And the third thing that oil was used for was for burning they burned the oil. The, and the purpose of the burning the oil was for what? Yes, it's for light. Giving light. And that was, what, what did they pour the oil on? They poured the oil on the wick of the lamp. Can I burn a wick without oil? I can. It'll burn. It'll burn. How long will it last? Not very long. It's gone very fast. If I get an oil lamp and I decide that I'm going to just burn the wick without any oil, the wick goes quick. Now we're back to those virgins, aren't we? I burn the wick very, very fast. The light is really weak. It's useless. The wick would burn without the oil, but the 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 light would be weak, useless for light. It quickly burns out. The wick is destroyed. However, when the oil is applied to the wick, what happens to the wick? The wick is transformed. The wick becomes strong. The flame becomes bright. It lasts. The flame is now useful for light. The wick has value. So go back over the three. The oil cleans you, softens you, penetrates to your bones, heals you, refreshes you, restores you. The food is given taste. It's given uh, softness. The wick is made functional by the oil. Becomes strong, great light, lasting light. And there you see the Holy Spirit symbolism on display, right? Our humanity, we are the what in the wick uh, symbol? We're the wick. We don't have any oil. We're dead. We burn out really fast. We're useless for light and we're destroyed. Our humanity, the wick, when inflamed by the holy fire of God, now has been given truth. With truth comes light. With light comes knowledge. Now, so that's oil. Let's add frankincense. There is no clearer symbol in the Bible than frankincense. It is probably the most obvious one. They will direct you to Psalm 141, 1 through 2, where it says, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me, give ear to my voice. This is, this is David, right? The Davidic psalm, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me, come to me quickly, give ear to my voice when I cry out to you, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Frankincense is prayer. Uh, The seraphim, it is said that their prayers fill the throne room of Christ with smoke. Revelation 5.8, the golden bowls 
Full of incense are the prayers of the saints. Aaron burned frankincense in the Holy of Holies. It was a smoke. It filled the Holy of Holies with smoke on the Day of Atonement. Why did he do that? Because if he didn't do it, what would happen to him? He would die. Leviticus 16, 12 through 13. So you see this, this positioning of smoke and the ascension of smoke. Frankincense, sweet aroma. The incense is likewise a cloud of smoke. By the way, the pillar of cloud of smoke, right? The incense ascends to the throne room of Christ. So now, it's the prayers are coming up to God, like smoke. So now the grain offering, the bloodless offering, was to be saturated with oil and frankincense. So I'm supposed to do what with it? He says, take fine flour, add Holy Spirit, then put in prayer. Now you're speaking Leviticus. The bloodless offering was to be so saturated with oil and frankincense, completely penetrated, that the grain and the unleavened bread was fully soaked. A lot of people will read this and they'll say, okay, I got my fine flour, and I got my oil over here, and I got my frankincense off to here. I got three compartments of Swanson TV dinner, whatever you wish. That is not, who even knows that Swanson exists anymore, much less what a TV dinner is. Got to be old. But nonetheless, I, ha- I don't have three compartmental. I have it mixed together. There's so much frankincense and so much oil that you- it penetrates. It's fully soaked. It's not on the side. It's now within. It is inseparable from the offering. He says, bring me fine flour. What does the fine flour represent? Mix it with the Holy Spirit. Put in prayers. Make it so it's now indistinguishable from the oil and from the frankincense. It cannot be separated out. Mix it so that now it cannot be unmixed. Get all that in there. Then what do you do next? Well, let's speed ahead here before we run out of time. Now we got to throw in is we just just think of a guy with a shovel. You got a plate and he comes in with a shovel full of salt and mixes that all up. Is this edible? This is really hilarious to me because those priests had to eat this stuff. That was important to him. You're eating this. You priests are eating this. I don't need them to eat it. I think of it this way. I'm going to get a whole room full of pastors. And if you have a room full of pastors, what's missing? That's right. Everybody's wallet. But let's assume that I've kept that from happening. And I'm going to prepare this for them. I'm going to say... Okay, I'm going to get some flour, and I'm going to pour all this oil in it, and I'm going to add this incense, then I'm going to fill it full of salt, and I'm going to give it to you to eat. I can bake it in a pan. Fry it up in a pan. You're going to eat it. Because you need to have this in you if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be a pastor. You've got to understand what he's trying to say to you in the grain offering. Because if you don't get it right, you're going to teach it wrong and you're going to make a mess. So you folks are eating this. And to God, it is a sweet aroma, which means it's some kind of incredible doctrinal truth. The power that salt has to purify that which is dead. That's what salt does, right? You got a lot of hunters here. I kill an animal, I'm going to add salt. Especially if I've got to keep it for any length of time. Salt has an antiseptic property. It wards off the decaying of flesh of food. It ensures the lasting. Salt is said to be continuing, to be, uh, uh, to render indestructibility to it, okay? Christ references this, and so let's read that. So now, when you go here, and we'll finish it next week as well, a little bit more to go. I've got to get to little Bonnie zombies before I shut down. But uh, let me go to Mark 9, 
Let's see. 49. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Start at 47. This is God saying this. You'll notice, if you went back to 44, you'll see he, he keeps repeating this three times. Their worm does not die and the, and the fire is not quenched. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So let's read at least one of those. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. This this portion, by the way, is described by theologians as very mysterious. They can't figure out how to solve it. I got a kick out of the particular person here that has this. Uh, he says this about it, this commentator. The meaning of this difficult verse seems to be that believers are purified through suffering and persecution. Really? We'll see that if that's true. But he goes on to say something actually very good. The link between salt and fire seems to lie in the Old Testament sacrifices. You think? And then he says this, which were accompanied by salt. Leviticus 2. Absolutely right. You will never understand what Christ is saying in verse verses 40. Let me go back. 44 through 49, 50, unless you understand Leviticus 2. You'll never figure out that mysterious verse. Salt is good. Salt of the covenant. Salt is linked to fire. Just as it is here in the grain offering. This has to be burnt. Burned. Fire. Salt and fire. So I have oil and frankincense. Now I've got... Salt and fire. I got something about their worm. Their worm will not die. What does he mean? Mark 9 cannot be solved apart from Leviticus 2. Don't even, don't even consider otherwise. So here we have an offering completely overwhelmed with salt, completely overwhelmed with oil, completely overwhelmed with frankincense. Only the priests were allowed to eat it along with God accepting his portion. God calls his portion, this offering, a sweet aroma because it most certainly is representing what? What is that? What did you make? You cooked it. Now you're looking at it. What is it? Well, he explains what it is in Mark 9. Their worm will not die. Okay, that was fun. I got you to start speaking Leviticus. We'll keep going next week. I'm going to end with little Bonnie zombies. Because somehow that all fits into this. You'll catch up sooner or later, and what's my plan? And to make you think just like me, so that you will have the most miserable life imaginable. That's only part, kind of a joke. But here we go, little Bonnie zombies. See, we have a problem. I have a mind. I know I have a mind. I can perceive my own mind. I know my own mental properties. But I cannot perceive any other mental properties except my own. That's a problem. It's called the problem of other minds in philosophy. No one can give you an image of your mind or an image of my mind. I can't see your mind at all. If they, they're never going to discover. They, they postulate sooner or later we're going to take a picture of each other's minds. No, you're not. Pictures are a physical representation. Minds are non-physical. I can observe outward manifestations. 
of your mind through your body. And I can make associations by doing that. But I cannot know what anyone else knows. I can only know what I know. And by the way, I see Bill the Fast uh, sweater. And I say it's kind of a maroonish red. Christopher sees the very same sweater. Does he see the same color that I see? I don't know if he does. I do know that he doesn't, by the way. He's partially colorblind. What color is Bill's uh, sweater to you? It's brown. Now, he could call it red, but to him it's brown. Does that make sense? But his brown might be my blue. I can't know. We can try to communicate, but I can't know. I can just know what I see, what I perceive. Language can facilitate a transfer of information, but meanings can be lost because we associate different levels to those meanings. That may not make sense yet. In other words, your definition of something and my definition of something may not be the same definition. I got a kick out of Anna and Andrew. Anna was was referencing a, a, a seminar that the military put on for, for young couples. And um, so you have men and women trying to understand each other. That's hilarious. That's comedy on parade. That's as amusing as you can get. And, and they did it. I was just listening to her. It's, it's very funny. They, they told them, they said, okay, start directing your comments to the behavior and not to the individual. So, hey, idiot, I don't like what you did is not appropriate. You're not supposed to call them idiots. You're supposed to say, hi, aren't you attractive? I don't like this stupid behavior of yours. That won't work either. You have to say, that's bad, but the person is not bad. I just find that so fascinating. We're trying to understand each other. And the language means different things. My definition of my words, and you have your definition of your words, and we assume that we have the same definition. Most of the time, we don't. So language can facilitate this transfer of information, but the meanings are different. If direct perception, by the way, the physicalist will say to you, the only thing that is real are things that I can perceive. If that's true, if that's called direct perception, is if that's accepted is the only justification of actually knowing something, then Houston, we have a big time problem. The problem of minds. We will never, we will never get anywhere with that. But there's a unique capability, not just in humanity, but in other creatures as well. We possess inferential capabilities. What I mean by that is we have the ability to infer meaning. Where did that come from? I can go and look at an animal. And I can infer what it's thinking. It's an innate, it's an inherent thing that is in me. It is in you. When other creatures, when other human beings express themselves, we have this natural understanding. I can witness somebody's emotional responses. I can see the anguish on their faces. I can see pain being expressed. I can see delight, concern, hatred. Compassion. I can see all of that expressed. Linguistic, sorry. Linguistic systems are not necessary. I can tell when you're mad. I have a natural ability to do that. We sensibly infer by that that you have mental life. I can see your responses and now I know that you have mental life. I say it all the time. I have dogs. I know they have mental life. I can see what they're thinking. It's natural. Where does this inferential capability come from? 
this natural understanding. Where does it come from? What is its origin? Why is it that little Bonnie zombies don't have it? I know they're philosophical zombies. They're thought experience experiments. But zombies don't have inferential capability. They don't have a natural gift of understanding. Why not? Now, zombies don't exist, do they? Well, some people think they do. What do they call them? Spiders. Things like that. Do spiders have inferential capability? Humans do. Dogs do. Capuchin monkeys. If you ever want to see that YouTube experiment where they cheat a capuchin monkey, it's unbelievable. He understands fairness, and everyone that watches him can understand anger, frustration. Where did that inferential capability come from? How can you explain that? Next week, back we go to the grain offering.